We got a lot to cover here in a 60 minute window, so we'll begin. We'll open up with prayer. Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you for our day. We thank you for all of our blessings that we have in Christ and that you've called us out of this world and you've deposited us into the kingdom of your beloved Son. We thank you for that. Today, as we look at your book of Revelation, we ask, Lord, that you would remind us of your promises, but also the reality of wrath, that this wrath that's coming will be forever. It will be unrelenting. And the fact that we've been spared from this wrath is, is everything. And I ask, Lord, that you would remind us of that, that when we say we have sins forgiven, it really is all we need. And our, our eternal life in you, we're so grateful for that. So help us to think about these things. Help us to think well upon your text. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. <clears throat> Dear ones, I want to finish off a PowerPoint. I have two slides to go from the last time. Remember, we had finished talking about Revelation chapter 14, verse 8. That was the verse that we were in. In fact, I didn't finish talking about it. We have two slides to go. But in Revelation chapter 14, verse 8, we saw that Babylon was going to be destroyed. And the message was proleptic. In other words, it was talking about the destruction of Babylon before it's occurred, even within the book of Revelation itself. Now, remember, Babylon, when it's destroyed, we saw that that is going to be the headquarters of all false religion. And there are two primary biblical references that John uses when he writes Revelation 14.8. That is, he alludes to the Old Testament. And that's what I want to finish on. Number one, notice the connection between Jeremiah 51, verses 6 through 7, and Revelation chapter 14, verse 8. Now, I read Jeremiah 51 last time, so let me read Revelation 14.8 and make the connection. Revelation 14.8, John said, And another angel, a second one, followed, saying, Fallen, fallen, Babylon the great, she who has made all the nations drink of the wine of the passion of her immorality. Now, dear ones, notice up in Jeremiah 51.7 what's highlighted in red. You see that God says the same thing. Babylon has been a golden cup in the hand of the Lord, that's Yahweh, intoxicating all the earth. And so the connection is back in Jeremiah's day, Babylon was the headquarters of false religion, all idolatry, and it spread it to the world. Well, the same thing is going to occur in the last seven years, the 70th week of Daniel. Again, Babylon is going to be rebuilt, and it will be the headquarters of all false religion. All rebellion, where man is elevated to be God rather than God. That's the initial sin. You will be like God, knowing the difference between good and evil. Remember the Tower of Babel? What did they do? Did they want to make a name for Yahweh and do as he, he commanded? No, they came together to make a name for themselves. Okay, So again, Babylon is going to be rebuilt. And my contention last time was Babylon is not going to be Rome. It's not going to be mystical Jerusalem, but it's going to be a real city of Babylon once again rebuilt on the Euphrates. And whether or not that is built sometime prior to the 70th week or during the 70th week, maybe... We don't know, but I suggested evidence that, in fact, if Alexander the Great could build a thousand-ship harbor in Babylon during his day, and he didn't have tractors and hoists and all that, he just had elephants and whatever else they used, I don't know. If he could do that, certainly Babylon could be reestablished with, even within the 70th week of Daniel. Okay, so here Babylon's fundamental character from Jeremiah the prophet's day 
Isaiah and all those prophets, it hasn't changed. It's always been the headquarters of false religion. Now, there's another allusion that John makes, and this time it's to Isaiah 21.9. So in other words, there's two Old Testament passages that John is building off of in Revelation 14.8. One was the Jeremiah 51. Now also you see Isaiah 21. Well, whereas Jeremiah 51 focused on the fundamental character is the same, here we see also the same in both instances is the assured destruction of Babylon. Let me read Isaiah 21.9. Isaiah wrote, Now behold, here come a troop of riders, horsemen in pairs, and one said, Fallen, fallen is Babylon, and all the images of her gods are shattered on the ground. Now, does everyone see the connection to Revelation 14.8 where it says, Fallen, fallen Babylon? What's very interesting is in Isaiah's day, in Isaiah 21, when this was written, the lament, fallen, fallen is Babylon, is a lament that came from Israel. Now, why would Israel lament the fall of Babylon? Well, the reason why is because they were trusting in Babylon for protection against Assyria. So who should have the Israelites been trusting in for protection against Assyria? God. But they didn't. They trusted in Babylon. They put their trust in the creation rather than the creator. Is everyone with me? So what happens then in the 70th week of Daniel is the same thing is going to happen again, but this time the whole world is going to put their trust in Babylon, the creation, rather than the creator. Okay, so what's interesting is in Isaiah's day, when Israel trusted in Babylon, they were disappointed. So disappointed. And by the way, the destruction that's being alluded to in Isaiah 21 is not the 539 B.C. destruction of Babylon at the hands of the Medo-Persians, but it's actually the destruction in 689 B.C. at the hands of the Assyrians. The Assyrians won. Okay? Now, what's interesting is in Isaiah's day, the people are disappointed. In John's day, in the future 70th week of Daniel, people again are going to be disappointed and trusting in the world. But I want you to notice a passage in Scripture where you can see where our trust can be placed and where we won't be disappointed. Turn your Bibles to Romans 9.33. Please turn your Bibles to Romans 9.33. And ironically, as we turn to Romans 9.33, this is another allusion to Isaiah, to Isaiah 28.16. So again, as you're turning to Romans 9.33, the big picture is in Isaiah's day, Israel trusted in Babylon, they're disappointed. In the future 70th week of Daniel, people will trust in Babylon. They'll be disappointed. It'll be destroyed. But notice what Paul says here in Romans 9.33. He says, just as it is written, now he cites Isaiah 28.16. He says, behold, I lay in Zion a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense, and he who believes in him will not be disappointed. Now, what's very interesting is that term disappointed in the original Hebrew, if you go back to the Masoretic text, it comes from a Hebrew term, hush, and it literally means not to be in a hurry, not to be in a hurry to go somewhere else, but to have your faith and your trust firmly planted. And so the idea here in Romans 9.33 is really the same. The idea is those who trust upon Jesus Christ, they're not going to be disappointed. Dear ones, you have to know that that trusting in the world will disappoint you. It will be destroyed. 
Jesus Christ is coming back to judge all idolatry, all their false religion, and anything other than faith alone in Jesus Christ alone will be an absolute disappointment to every single person. So the term disappointed again, dear ones, is a term that is not going to apply to you and I as believers in Jesus Christ. I think that's a fitting way to leave Revelation 14.8, just to remember what is it ultimately that will last, that will be there for us. It's trust in Jesus Christ. Dear ones, think about all the false religions that people are trusting in today. You know, you look at a lot of teenagers, and they trust in the world in the sense that the world is all they know, and it's just always going to be there. Well, all of a sudden, when you get into your 40s and 50s and 60s and 70s and more and more people that you love and that you've known all your life, when they pass on, the world starts to disappoint more and more, doesn't it? So many of you that are older than me have seen more disappointment than I have, whether it's in your career or in your family life. And the world disappoints. And I'm not just talking about the world in rebellion. I'm just talking about creation. It disappoints. But what you and I have to know is that the promises of God never will. The king is coming and he's bringing a glorious kingdom. And I think that that's what we should take away from this section of Revelation. Now, with that, I got to get out of this PowerPoint. Let's go on to the next one because it ties in. I wish I had a fast button where I could just pull up the next one to develop that. Oh, okay, yeah, read it, please, if you have it. Uh, uh, oh, no, but I mean, uh, it just gave a reference. Oh, okay. Uh, um, yeah. yeah, well, you know, it's interesting, and I know Isaiah 8 is tied into Isaiah 7, but there the issue is who is Ahaz going to trust in? And so the whole issue is Ahaz, is he going to trust in Yahweh, or is he going to trust in an arrangement with Assyria? So the same issue applied in Ahaz's day as well. Very good. Yep. So now let's move on to Revelation 14, 9 through 12. And what I want to show you is following the announcement of judgment on Babylon, we're going to now see the announcement of judgment upon the participants of Babylon. That is those who have taken upon themselves the mark of the beast. That's what we're going to look at now in verses 9 through 12. Let's look at what John says. Continuing on, he says in Revelation 14, 9 through 10, then another angel, a third one, Follow them, saying with a loud voice, If anyone worships the beast in his image and receives a mark on his forehead or on his hand, he also will drink of the wine of the wrath of God, which is mixed in full strength in the cup of his anger. And he will be tormented with fire and brimstone in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb. Now, dear ones, notice here at the very beginning, there's a third angel that comes on the scene and makes this pronouncement. And remember, the first angel did what? The first angel in this section, in Revelation 14, proclaimed the gospel. The second angel proclaimed judgment upon Babylon. Why? Because the gospel that was proclaimed by the angel wasn't believed. Well, now we have judgment not just on Babylon, but the participants of Babylon, those who take upon themselves the mark of the beast and the worship of the beast. In fact, notice in red, we have a first-class conditional. It says, if anyone... So this is universal. If anyone worships the beast in his image and receives a mark on his forehead or on his hand, what? He also will drink of the wine of the wrath of God. So this condition, it's a first-class conditional. A first-class conditional in Greek is presented to be a fact. In other words, it's assumed true for the sake of argument. And then the context tells you whether it's true or not. So assumed true for the sake of argument in this state, or this 
text, I should say, it does state that it is true. In other words, the vast majority of people on the planet will, in fact, be those who take the mark of the beast. So the if portion is the protasis. That's the if portion. If anyone is going to worship the beast or take upon his mark, they're lost. They're going to be going to perdition. And notice the result, verse 10, the implied then. So protasis, if, if they worship the beast, if they take his mark, then, verse 10, he also will what? Drink of the wine of the wrath of God. And so this is something where you have a clear division between those who belong to God and those who don't. There will be those who have the name of Christ, and there will be those who have the name of the beast. Okay, it's very, very stark indeed. Now, notice here the term in verse 10. You have two terms that are used for God's wrath. You have the term wrath, which is thumos, and you have anger, which is orge. Now, some scholars will try to differentiate between these two terms. The thumos is vehement fury that's typically expressed in an outward way, whereas orge is more of a settled indignation from within. Here's what you want to know. Those terms can be used so interchangeably that there's really no distinction oftentimes between them, but that's typically the bent between the two. Yes, David. Uh, I was just thinking here about if... uh there's going to be greater wrath on people like Joseph Stalin or Mao Zedong or fill in the blank. Yeah. Huh? Yeah, I do. I do think that there's levels of judgment. Um, we know that, remember the cities that saw the miracles that Jesus yeah. uh, did the miracles in? He says, woe to you, uh, Bethsaida, where, woe to you, Chorazin. He says, if the miracles had been done in you that were done in Sodom and or yeah, in Sodom and Gomorrah that were done in you, they would have repented long ago. So the point is that they had a greater culpability because they had been given greater light. And I think that there's evidence in Scripture that, yes, those who do more wickedly will suffer even greater. Now, saying that, anyone who has sinned, remember sin, the term in Hebrew, kata, means to miss the mark? Yeah. So think of God as having always, he always hits a bullseye when it comes to perfection, morally. Well, you and I have missed the mark. And if you've missed the mark, you're not compatible to be in the presence of a holy and righteous God. So all sin will send you into judgment. But then I think once you're within the lake of fire, perhaps there are degrees of judgment within. Or somebody like Jim Jim Jones, I was thinking of too, the Jonestown Massacre. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, Bob, do you have a reference for it? Well, somebody with one of their little computer concordance yeah there are passages say these will receive greater judgment condemnation yeah amen so if you look up greater condemnation in the new testament you'll find it and i'm working on this whole thing of two domain theology yeah yeah i've got it about half written and i then i go back and meditate and read and uh, conjecture in my mind what's going to happen um, we need to first think of the two domains and the fact that they're distinct. Darkness, light. Yeah. The kingdom of Satan, kingdom of God, right? Right. Truth, you know, air, truth, and so on. We tend to want to think about distinctions within mm. 
and there are such things. But now, in this life, what's of primary concern is getting out of the kingdom of darkness and Satan and into the kingdom of his beloved son. And repentance, forgiveness of sins, all that. Now, within those two big categories, there's certainly distinction. For example, people living under darkness were unconverted. Well, some are like Joseph Stalin, and others are like Mother Teresa. Right. All right? And there is such a thing as common grace. And we would have to affirm that it's better to do good than to do evil. And we would have to affirm that doing horrific evil, evil repeatedly is really bad and will cause greater judgment. Mm. But we don't want to be in that realm. Exactly. We need to get it under Christ and walk in the light. And there may be differences there, but Paul said, do not go on passing judgment before the time. But wait until the Lord returns, and he reveals the secret motives of the heart. Amen. Okay. So now in the church, we're not very good judges about who's the better Christian. Right, right. Because we may get it wrong. But the important thing is that we get into the realm of light through repentance and faith, and that we love one another and care for one another and help one another grow in the grace and knowledge of God, the rest gets sorted out in eternity. Yeah, amen. Well well said. Thank you, Bob. Yeah, Brian. <clears throat> we get, uh, we usually focus on, uh, you know, bad guys like uh, Stalin and Hitler and yeah. stuff like that, but the Bible says that the false teachers will Receive be greater condemnation. received a, a condemnation. Yeah, different, not many of you brothers different, want to be teachers. Right, and thusly, receive a stricter judgment. different different uh, rewards for exactly. the same. Exactly, exactly. Um, my, I'll just tell you a story, David. My dad has a friend that he'd witnessed to for many years, and he said when he died, he wouldn't mind going to hell because that's where his friends were. Well, my dad explained what hell was like, and then he thought, well, that wasn't such a good idea. Well, then he started thinking he was good enough for heaven because, after all, um, he was as good as his friend Fritz. He'd always bring up his friend Fritz. I'm no worse than he is. But we have to remember, we're never going to be judged according to Fritz or anyone else. It's, we're judged according to the Holy One of Israel. And as Bob is laying out, it's either or. If we don't have the perfection of Christ imputed to us and His atonement, we're going to be in the category separated from God and under judgment. And what's interesting is here, when you see wrath and anger, the reason I'm highlighting these is when they're used together, I don't think we should see necessarily a distinction between the two, but what's being highlighted is the intensity of the wrath. The reason why they're being used is because this time, God's wrath is not going to be held back. When you see terms piled up, it's an intensification. In fact, notice what he says in verse 10. He says, he also will drink of the wine of the wrath of God, which is mixed in full strength. Literally in the Greek, it's mixed, unmixed. So if you're reading it, it's kind of, a, it's, it's kind of strange. It's mixed, unmixed. Well, the point is, is that in the ancient world, if you were going to drink wine... Remember, wine was a staple in the diet because it's the way to stave off parasites, etc. if you're going to drink something. Well, they would have to dilute it with water. Okay, well, the point is, is God's wrath is not going to be diluted. It is going to be the full measure. And so nothing is going to be restrained. And at the end, at the very end of our message, if we get to it today, I'm going to cite you a passage from Jonathan Edwards' sermon, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. 
And he has a very good description, I think, of what this may look like. And um, it's shocking. So anyway, it's, this is going to be the full measure of God's wrath. Nothing is going to be held back. Now, the other thing I want you to see is notice the relationship between the wrath of God and the cup. Does everyone see the cup that's highlighted there? What's very interesting is I think there may be a religious notion to this idea of the cup. Here's what I want you to think about. You and I belong to Christ. We participate in a cup, the Lord's Supper. Those who belong to Antichrist, they also have a religious ceremony. They're going to belong to a cup, but it's not the Lord's Supper. It's going to be the Lord's wrath. Okay, so in a real sense, we can ask the question, which cup do you belong to? Do you belong to the cup of the Lord's Supper or the cup of His wrath? And what we have to know is in the ancient world, a cup represented one's lot in life one's divinely appointed destiny. And in fact, let me just give you evidence of this because what I want you to see is the relationship between the cup and one's allotment in life and the idea of the cup is God's wrath. First of all, turn your Bibles to John chapter 18, verse 11. I want you to see how else John uses this idea of cup in particular in relationship to Jesus Christ. John 18, 11. Remember, this is where Peter wants to fight the enemies physically with a sword. And so what is he really trying to do? He's trying to prevent Jesus from being crucified and taking upon himself the cup that God had ordained for him. John 18, 11, Peter's trying to fight with a sword. It says, so Jesus said to Peter, put the sword into the sheath. The cup which the Father has given me, shall I not drink it? So the cup here is the allotment of Christ's life. And ironically, the cup that he is going to have is the cup of God's wrath. He's going to take upon himself on the cross the full measure of God's wrath. That's what's been allotted to him. Think of another passage. Remember in Mark chapter 10, you have those bold and boisterous Zebedee boys. You have James and John. And I think it's around, it's verses 37 through 40. They come to Jesus they say, hey, remember when you get into your kingdom, set one on the right and one on the left. We want to be next to you. We want to be in positions of exalted authority. Well, Jesus asked the question, well, can you take upon yourself my cup and my baptism? In other words, can you take upon yourself what the Lord has allotted for me? Now, what's interesting is in the text, he, Jesus does acquiesce and say, in a sense, you will take upon yourself my cup, but they suffer because they belong to Christ, Christ suffers for us. Are you with me? He suffers in a unique way, but he does acknowledge that they will suffer. So that shows you that cup really had to do with one's allotment in life. Now, we also see, though, the cup is often used with reference to judgment and to God's wrath. And I want you to see the allusions here. I think that's primary here in this text. Turn your Bibles to Jeremiah 25:15. Jeremiah 25:15. Again, you're going to see the wrath of God is likened to a cup. And we're going to draw this together and show you what Jesus does for us. Jeremiah 25, 15. And I think, again, this would have been in John's mind as he was penning this. Jeremiah 25, 15, it says, For thus says Yahweh, the God of Israel, says to me, Take this cup of the wine of wrath from my hand, and cause all the nations to whom I send you to drink it. By the way, you see the same idea in Psalm 75, 8, that the nations will one day be caused to, 
to drink the cup of God's wrath. So the cup is often associated with God's wrath. And certainly here in the 70th week of Daniel, it's not going to be diluted. It'll be poured out in full strength. Now, how are you and I saved? Well, you and I were saved because of Jesus Christ who took the wrath for us. Now, turn your Bibles to 1 Corinthians 11, verse 25. I want you to show, their, show you the relationship to the Lord's Supper. 1 Corinthians eleven twenty-five. Remember, during the Passover Seder, they have four cups, all of them coming from Exodus chapter 6. You have the cup of sanctification. You have the cup of deliverance. You have the cup of redemption. And then you have the cup of consummation. Well, the third cup is the cup of redemption, and that's the one more than likely that Jesus held up. And this is what Paul records. 1 Corinthians eleven twenty-five. 25. It says, In the same way he took the cup also after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. He says, Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. So notice the idea of atonement. Jesus Christ shed blood averts God's wrath. Why? Because he took the full measure of the cup of God's wrath for us. So at the end of the day, you have two people, and this is what I think we can glean from this passage in Revelation, is that if you belong to the false Christ, the Antichrist, you'll be a participant in a cup. It's the cup of God's wrath. But every time that you and I participate in the Lord's Supper, we should rejoice in what cup we participate in. We participate in what cup? The cup of redemption. And one day, we're going to be celebrating the cup of consummation. Are you with me? So that's one big contrast that we have is between the cup of the, those who belong to the Antichrist, they get the wrath of God, versus those who have the forgiveness of sins. Now, notice also, it's very important, it says he, notice in verse 10, after the second box, he, now this is anyone who has taken upon themselves the mark of the beast, he will be tormented with fire and brimstone. Oh, before I put up my underline, fire and brimstone is an allusion, and I'll show you in the next slide, to Revelation 21.8, to the lake of fire. So what's being referred to here is the eternal states, the lake of fire, what we would refer, as, refer to as his hell. Are you with me? So fire and brimstone also brings us back to passages like Genesis 19 with Sodom and Gomorrah being utterly destroyed. Well, this fire and brimstone is going to be forever and ever. So, yeah, David. We got another question here. We got... Oh, okay, all right. Well, maybe we'll, we'll come to it. But the other thing I want to point out is notice in the underlying portion, it says this is also going to be in the presence of the holy angels in the presence of the Lamb. Now, this is the wrath of God being poured out, and notice it's in the presence of the Lamb. The reason this is so shocking, I think, to us is, do you notice in the American culture, I think we have in our minds that Satan runs hell, that he's got his little pitchfork and he has his minions and he just runs hell and he organizes it. In fact, do you know Saul Linsky? Saul Linsky, how many, if, a lot of people have heard of him. Do you know he had given an interview and they asked him where would he want to go if, when he died? And he says, if there is an afterlife, remember he's an atheist, he said, I'd like to go to hell to organize it because he's a community organizer. <laughs> The point is, is the average person, their conception of hell is one in which there's kind of a party going on and Satan has his pitchfork and it's just where the bad people conjugate. Isn't it interesting that the one who runs hell isn't Satan, but it's Jesus? And I think the lamb 
The reason why John chooses that rather than saying the Lord Jesus is to show that in the Lamb you have the cup of this wrath averted. But this Lamb who was slain is also the Lamb who runs hell. He is the one who pours out the wrath upon the enemies of God. Yeah. And then I think just to confirm that too, is I, may, I might have this wrong, I'm just asking this as a question, yeah. is that at the end when Satan is, is thrown into the lake of fire as well, he's thrown in. Exactly right. right. So After he's the, not in control. Exactly. Right, he'll be, for a thousand years in Revelation 20, he'll be placed into an abyss, a temporary holding place. After the millennial kingdom, he'll launch a rebellion at the Battle of Gog and Magog, where he takes all of the unregenerate once again against Christ in Jerusalem, and it's a very lopsided battle. Jesus calls down fire, and then he sentences Satan into the lake of fire forever, but also the people at the white throne judgment. In fact, we'll do some reading of those texts on the next slide. One thing I want to point out is when I was in a debate about eschatology, it was kind of an informal one, I had people of the pre-wrath persuasion that would say to me, Eric, this text suggests that anyone who takes upon themselves the mark of the beast will go to hell. I'd say yes. They would say, well, if you're teaching the pre-trib rapture position, that's a position in which they won't be prepared to meet Antichrist. If you're wrong, they're going to meet Antichrist and they're going to be disappointed and therefore you've set them up for failure. And I would say in my response that, of course, God will enable his elect to persevere and nobody will go to perdition if they belong to Jesus Christ. The rebuttal to that was, yes, but God uses means. Does he not use Scripture and the warnings of Scripture? And so clearly, if there's a warning that we might meet Antichrist and you're telling people that they won't, the Scriptures aren't being used as a means to steer them away so that they would persevere. My rebuttal to that is, who is it that we should ultimately be concerned about meeting? Is it Antichrist? Or is it Christ? Who should you be prepared to meet? It's Christ. Didn't Jesus say in Matthew 10, 28, Do not fear he who can destroy the body, but him who can destroy both body and soul in hell? That's Matthew 10, 28. Who is it that can destroy both body and soul, the whole person in hell? It's the Lord Jesus Christ. So what's interesting is I can turn this whole argument and say, if you're not teaching the pre-trib rapture view, you're preparing people to meet Antichrist, whom you shouldn't fear anyway. But you're certainly not preparing people to imminently meet what? Jesus Christ. That's what we should know. We should know that we have to worry about Christ. Another corollary to this, in general, we can't create Christian doctrine by thinking of some psychological outcome yeah. that we would prefer. Right. Now, that has a lot of applications. We can't say, well, if we teach this, people will be upset. Yeah. Or if we teach that, they'll be, they won't be loving you. If we teach this. And so much modern theology does that. Yeah. It's looking for a psychological outcome and then determining what they're willing to teach and believe. Right, I think right. Emergent does that constantly. Yeah. And so does the seeker movement. Okay. What we need to do is preach what the evidence in the Bible tells us is true. Amen. And let the psychological outcome be in God's hands. Right. Because we can't predict what people are going to do. 
Let me tell you a little story I was thinking of. Somebody can maybe remember, there's a lady who was the foremost expert on death and dying. Yeah. I can't remember her name. Kubler-Ross. Good for you. <laughs> Somebody's mind still works. Uh, I saw a debate between her, I think it was Dave Hunt or some other back in the 80s, a Christian who believed the Bible's true. Yeah. And so she was uh, saying, well, you have to be this way and this way and this way and this way to obtain the psychological outcome you're looking for. Yeah. So then the Christian says, well, if there really is a hell, which the Bible says there is, I don't want people to feel peaceful on their way going there. I don't want to warn them that they need to repent. Yeah. And this Kubler-Ross, this was on an Anchorberg video back in the 80s, she said, I would never let any of my dying patients anywhere near you. Oh. In other words, you're not going to create the psychological outcome we would like. Oh. And when I was reading all this stuff about the emergent claims, yeah. it was always based on that. Right. We can't believe anything if it troubles us. Right. Or if it's not what fits our worldview, yeah. that everything's emerging into a better future. Right. So we're going to have to decide right here and right now that the Bible determines what we believe. Yeah, amen. And we can't imagine psychological outcomes and let that determine what we're willing to preach. Right, amen. And the Bible teaches us that we should fear Christ, not Antichrist. That's what Amen. we have to remember. So, you know, what's the use of making the outcome everybody's happy? Right. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, that's not the, the goal. Yeah. Now, one thing I want to point out, let me, before I move on, notice the underlying portion in the presence of the holy angels in the presence of the Lamb. That's where the wrath is going to take place. Hold on to that because I'm going to show you an apparent contradiction, although the contradiction will be resolved, as you'll see in 2 Thessalonians 1. So hold on to that. Now, the other thing we're going to see here in this text is that hell is everlasting. Revelation 14, 11 through 12, it says, And the smoke of their torment, these are the people who worship the beast, the smoke of their torment goes up forever and ever. They have no rest day and night, those who worship the beast and his image, and whoever receives the mark of his name. Here is the perseverance of the saints who keep the commandments of God in their faith in Jesus. Now, one thing I want to lay out is when does this wrath come upon those who take upon themselves the mark of the beast, it happens after the millennial kingdom during the white throne judgment, okay? What's very interesting is the beast that they worship, the false Christ and the false prophet, they go to this eternal judgment prior to the millennial kingdom. So I just want you to be aware of when this occurs prior to going through the rest of this passage. So let me show you some evidence. Just jot this down. I'll just cite it to you. Revelation 19.20, I'm reading at the very end of the text, talking about the false Christ, the Antichrist, the beast, and the other beast, the false prophet. It says, these two were thrown alive into the lake of fire, which burns with brimstone. Notice, that's Revelation 19.20. The two false beasts, the false Christ, the false prophet, are thrown into the lake of fire when? Before the millennial kingdom. But now, turn your Bibles to Revelation 20, verses 13 through 15. Again, please turn your Bibles to Revelation chapter 20, verses 13 through 15. And what I'm going to show you is that this judgment that's being t 
talked about here is going to be fulfilled after the millennial kingdom at the white throne judgment, a judgment that's just for the unbelievers. Revelation 20, verses 13 through 15. So everyone who's part of this judgment is an unbeliever. Listen to what it says. It says, And the sea gave up the dead which were in it, and death and Hades gave up the dead which were in them, and they were judged, every one of them according to their deeds. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And anyone's name was not found written in the book of life. He was thrown into the lake of fire. The second death is eternal separation from God in his salvation forever. And it will take place in the lake of fire. That's what's being alluded to here in Revelation 14. Why? Because John wants us to see this in advance. He wants us to have a proleptic look at it to encourage those who are going through the midst of tribulation during the 70th week of Daniel. Okay, now, one more thing I want to point out. I want to make the connection to fire and brimstone. You saw that in the previous slide. Turn your Bibles just a little bit ahead to Revelation 21.8. Revelation 21.8, you have believers who are going to be enjoying the new Jerusalem. They're going to be enjoying the eternal states. But listen to what happens to unbelievers. Revelation 21.8, it says, But for the cowardly and unbelieving and abominable and murderers and immoral persons and sorcerers and idolaters and liars, their part will be in the lake that burns with fire and brimstone, which is the second death. So repeatedly, the location for the unregenerate is talked about as being a lake of fire, lake of fire and brimstone. It is the eternal abode. And the fact that it is eternal, and again, it's going to happen after the millennial kingdom, notice it says in Revelation 14, 11 on the screen, the smoke of their torment goes up forever and ever. In the Greek, notice the Greek phrase, two nouns put together. You have aeonis, aeon, aeonon. So it literally is the ages of the ages. One's accusative plural, the other is genitive plural. It's the ages of the ages, literally unlimited time. Now, notice I like everlasting better than eternal. Why? Because technically eternal means to never have beginning and never to have an end. And technically the only being that's eternal is God. So what we really mean is everlasting in the sense that this judgment will begin at a point in time and it will last forever and ever. Now, this doctrine of eternal judgment has come under fire, no pun intended, by many liberal theologians and emergents and all sorts of people who don't like the idea that God would judge anyone forever. But what's very interesting is let's do exegesis. Let's do exactly what Bob said and say, let's take our evidence from Scripture rather than our emotions. Does John intend when he says forever and ever, the Greek phrase aeonis, aeonon, does he mean without end? He does. The reason we know that is because very similar phrases are used eight times. The same terms are used eight other times in the book of Revelation referring to the eternality of Jesus Christ and God the Father. You see that in Revelation 1.18, Revelation 4.9, Revelation 4.10, Revelation 5.13, etc., etc., on the screen before you. So the point is, if in fact this term is to be thought of as anything other than eternal, well then when it was applied to God or Jesus Christ, they would be less than what? Eternal. Okay, so what we have to realize is that when the term is applied to this torment that the unregenerate go through, it really is everlasting. 
it will be without end. That's the best exegesis we have. And to, for someone to say that it's not, it's special pleading. They don't have any evidence to base their opinion other than the fact that they just don't like it. Yeah, Barb. Um, I had a question. To, um, you know, there. I, I see you address some Rob Bell here in a minute, but yeah. You know, there's a. Um, I read a, a book, The Reason for God, by Tim Keller or some yeah. of it, and he has a chapter on redefining hell, as I recall. And I, I, I my remembrance was that he talked about hell being um, just living. He believed there is a hell, but that it's just living in your self-centeredness for the rest of your life or something like that. So I'm taking on what Jesus said and what, what the Bible says. As there's literally, are there literally flames, fire and brimstone, um, you know, lake of fire? It's actually, you can take that literally, can't you? You can, absolutely. There will be a real location. Just as you and I will be raised from the dead to enjoy a literal physical kingdom forever and ever, the unregenerate will be raised bodily to receive judgment forever and ever. And what's interesting is when you see the term destruction, we'll see this again in 2 Thessalonians 1, realize that destruction doesn't mean annihilation. So let's say you say that car was destroyed in an auto accident. You don't mean by that that it was annihilated or it ceased to exist. The same thing applies to the unregenerate. They are going to have a resurrection that will enable them to withstand, I don't want to say withstand, it's not in the sense that it's bearable, but in the sense that they won't be annihilated in this lake of fire. So the torment goes on and on and on and on. And what you're suggesting is from these other false teachers, what they're really talking about is that hell is really a lack of self-esteem. It's a lack of morality within us. That's not what the Bible's describing. The Bible's describing a real location and a place where these people will dwell forever and ever, just as you're going to have a real place to dwell with Christ in the new heavens, the new Jerusalem, uh, the new earth. Um, everything's going to be made new for you. They're going to have a real place too, okay? So, yeah, anyone who suggests that it's a state of mind or it's just things that we do to ourselves or it's just bad attitudes, lack of self-esteem, whatever it is, they're denying clearly what the Bible states because they don't like it. Um, it's a psychological argument, as Bob was mentioning, not an exegetical argument, so well stated. Now, what's interesting is you say that, notice it says they have no rest day and night. So again, that ties into this idea that this is an eternal torment. Now, how do you and I have rest as the people of God? In Christ. Yes, amen. We have rest in Jesus Christ. Now, next week, I'm going to focus more on this. I'm going to focus on our rest that you and I have by being in Christ from the book of Hebrews. And we'll talk about this idea of having Sabbath rest. Where is true Sabbath rest found? It's found in Jesus Christ. Okay? But one thing I want to point out is I want to foreshadow next week. Turn your Bibles to Revelation 14, 13. This will be the next verse that we're not going to cover today, but I just want you to see it. Revelation 14, 13. Because I want you to see that believers do have rest. Revelation 14, 13, notice John says, And I heard a voice from heaven saying, Right, blessed are the dead who die in the Lord. So these are believers from now on. So stop there. These are believers who are dying because they're being put to death by the satanic forces on earth during the last seven years. But they're blessed. Why? It says, So that they may rest, notice, from their labors, for their deeds will follow them. So when you go into faith in Jesus Christ, you go into messianic rest. 
Okay? For those outside of Christ who are worshiping Antichrist, there's no rest for them. All right? Now, the other thing I want to point out is, notice in verse 12 here, in blue, it says, Here is the perseverance of the saints who keep the commandments of God and their faith in Jesus. Now, that seems kind of out of place because we've just seen mentioning, a lot of mentioning of wrath and God's eternal torment. And all of a sudden, John says, Here is the perseverance of the saints. The reason he places this here is oftentimes throughout the book of Revelation, when John is mentioning tremendous judgment, he'll use that as a motivating factor for believers to persevere in the faith, not to flee from Christ to Babylon, not to flee from Christ to false Christ, not to flee from Christ for any reason. Okay, let me give you an example. At the Battle of Armageddon, turn your Bibles again to Revelation 16, verses 14 through 16. This is one actually that gave me a little bit of um, angst as I was interpreting Revelation some years ago. And then I finally resolved what John was doing in my mind. Revelation 16, verses 14 through 16. Notice here it says, for they are... Now, by the way, let me just set the context. What's happening is there are spirits that are going to be leading an army to this battle of Armageddon. Okay? The battle that will eventually surround Jerusalem. It says, for they are spirits of demons performing signs which go out to the kings of the whole world to gather them together for the war of the great day of God, the Almighty. Notice verse 15. All of a sudden you have this parenthetical statement. Behold, Jesus says, I am coming like a thief. Blessed is the one who stays awake and keeps his clothes so that he will not walk about naked and men will not see his shame. And then in verse 16 it says, and they gathered them together to the place which in Hebrew is called Armageddon. Okay? Now, what's interesting is notice the parenthetical statement. It's a call to belief. Jesus says, I'm coming like a thief. So what gave me trouble is I'm reading that in Revelation 16, and I believe that the Bible teaches a pre-trib rapture. But notice Jesus, at the very end of the judgments, or at the bold judgments, it's talking about himself coming like a thief. Well, the reason it's not talking about his coming, the second coming, is this is being written to all Christians. We as an audience need to know that these judgments don't have to be for us. That if we come to Christ who's coming like a thief, we're going to be skipping out on all these things. The same thing is occurring here in Revelation 14, 12. When you see tremendous judgment alluded to, the promise of salvation is nearby for those who persevere. Yeah. Um, back here. I just wanted to interject also that like um, in that verse 12, yeah. the perseverance of the saints who keep the commandments of God. And you've been doing such a bang up job in Romans in your sermons about the purpose of the law. Yeah. But Seventh-day Adventists use this verse as their crux verse for who are the ones who are keeping the faith. Oh, because exactly. they believe that a the government or whomever, the authorities, will make a law that says you have to worship on the Sabbath, on Sunday. Okay, and so, good. I mean, it's just one of those things. So they're going to look at that and they're going to say, see, we're the ones that are keeping the commandments of God. Yeah. But it does tie into what you've been doing in Romans, which is what the purpose of the law is. Well said, Luann. And notice the relationship between faith and obedience. There's faith in Jesus Christ required, and the commandments of God, the people who obey those commandments, are those who obey Jesus Christ and his apostles. What's very interesting is next week we'll focus on Hebrews 4, where 
the writer of Hebrews quoting David from Psalm 95 says, so there remains a rest for the people of God. And he applies rest, Sabbath rest, to those who are in Messiah. Okay, so Sabbath is no longer on Saturday. It's for those who are in Christ. Okay, Bob and I were doing research on this, and I think you came up with the number. Sabbath is used 52 times in the New Testament. It always refers to Saturday. Okay, but what we see is that, for instance, in Romans 14, Paul says one day by one man is elevated above another. Another man views every day alike. Each must be convinced in his own mind. In Christ, we have liberty to celebrate the Lord and to gather whenever we want. And true rest is found in Jesus Christ, not on Saturday. And so, yeah, they're actually rejecting the commandments of God and faith in Jesus by doing that. Because you see, they're saying that that is something necessary to be pleasing to God. And in so doing, they're denying the Lord Jesus, the Lord of Sabbath, their true Sabbath rest. Isn't that ironic? So, yeah, very troubling. And we'll, we'll talk more about that next week then when we talk about true Sabbath rest, but very good catch on that. Yeah, so the big thing I want you to see, though, on this text is that hell is everlasting. Now, that's been under attack. And the quote that I have here from a heretic is of, as you mentioned here, Rob Bell. Rob Bell says in his book, Love Wins, he says this, quote, a staggering number of people have been taught that a select few Christians will spend forever in a peaceful, joyous place called heaven, while the rest of humanity spends forever in torment and punishment in hell with no chance for anything better. Stop there. I think that that's really what irks a lot of non-believers, is that this judgment really is forever, and there's no chance for anything better. Okay, and so you'll hear various theologians try to get around that. There, there's going to be a second chance, that there's really soul sleep, and that it's really annihilation, that this judgment isn't forever. Dear ones, it is forever. It really is. And that's what the exegetical evidence suggests. We have to derive, as Bob was saying, our theology from what the text says, not our emotions or some philosophical angst against such a position. Notice he goes on to say, this is Rob Bell's position. Notice he's critiquing the Bible. If you believe what the Bible says, what does he say of you? This is misguided and toxic and ultimately subverts the contagious spread of Jesus' message of love, peace, forgiveness, and joy that our world desperately needs to hear. Dear ones, Jesus himself talked more about hell than he did about heaven. You know that? He warned about hell. Matthew 10, 20, do not fear he who can destroy the body, but he who can destroy both body and soul in hell. Yeah. This is just a classic example of the type of thing we need to be able to see through because Rob Bell here, and I, I, you know, he's he's implying that there's contradictions in the Bible, but but the Jesus's message of love, peace, and forgiveness and joy is through Christ. Amen. And he conveniently forgets that. See, and and this is what those that are against uh, you know, the gospel. This is what they do all the time. Yes. Well said, Eric. I one time was asked to speak at a church, and I was talking about the gospel all the way from Genesis 3.15 all the way through the entire Bible. And I got to the end, 45 minutes. We had 15 minutes left for questions and answers. And there was a guy, I think I've mentioned this, he was looking at me the whole time like this. And I got done talking about the gospel, and he says, you've been talking about for 45 minutes about all these things, but I have yet to hear about the love of God. And I said to him, Romans 5, 8, God demonstrates his love for us in this. While we're yet sinners, Christ died for us. The fact that we've been spared from this wrath is the greatest expression of love that, we've ever, that mankind has ever seen. Uh, Todd Friel had an analogy this way. He said, what if someone came by you, you're fishing on a pier, and they go running by you and they say, I love you, and they jump off the pier into the ocean. 
You say, well, they love me, I guess, but I don't know what that's all about. If you don't know how the love is expressed, in other words, if you don't know what you're being spared from, then you don't really know what the love is. Jesus Christ spared us from this. And that's what's so sad is the message of the gospel is he is the way of salvation from these things. That's a very loving message indeed, I think. I, yeah, I just yeah. want to mention, I think that's the mindset we have when we don't want to um, share the gospel, share the truth of hell to homosexuals. Right. It's, 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 um, it's, it's loving to tell them that Jesus loves them, but it's mm -hmm. not loving to tell them where their final destination could be if they don't repent. Well said, and I think we have to have both. Um, I was an airline pilot years ago. I had a, a dinner with a, a gay flight attendant, a homosexual guy, and we were good friends at the company. We got along fine, but he knew I was a believer. One day we're at TGIF Fridays at the Minneapolis airport. We have two hours until our flight goes out. We're sitting there. We have dinner, and I'm in my pilot suit. He's in his flight attendant suit, and we sit down, and the first thing he asked me, he says, you think what I do is sinful, don't you, Eric? The first thing out of his mouth, and I said, well, I, I do, Blaine. But I said, and I changed his name, by the way. Um, the, I do think what you do is sinful, but I want you to know that what I've done is sinful and will send me to hell. So I said, the difference between you and me is I'm willing to acknowledge my sin acknowledge my need for a savior, turn to Jesus Christ, to have forgiveness of sins, and to turn from that sin. I said, and you can have that same forgiveness. And so what I think we do as Christians is we're not saying, look, you bunch of wretched sinners out there, you need Christ, but we're all swell people who didn't need him. What we're saying is, no, I was in the same predicament you are. I'm another beggar who's found the bread of life. And uh, so, yeah, I think that that's how we approach it and say, no, everyone needs salvation. Any sin, kata. Sin is missing the mark. Any form of sin will set you apart from God on your way to hell. So, yeah, well said. We can't sugarcoat it. We have to tell it the way it is, but we can do it in a loving way, in, way, in a way in which we acknowledge our own sinfulness and need for a Savior as well. Yeah. Now, I want to give some just exegetical evidence real quick that hell is everlasting. Rob Bell in his book, Love Wins, doesn't give any evidence. He just says, well, the Bible doesn't really talk that much about hell. Oh, yes, it does. And I want to show you just a quick couple of examples, one from the Old Testament and then one from the New. Notice Daniel 12.2. At the very end, by the way, this is the end of the 70th week of Daniel. It's being referred to here. Daniel 12.2, it says, Many of those who sleep in the dust of the ground will wake these to everlasting life, but the others to disgrace and everlasting contempt. Realize everlasting olam, if we're not going to take everlasting contempt, by the way, the term for contempt there means abhorrence. It's only used one other time in Isaiah 66, 24. And the idea is that they're under such judgment and it's so grotesque that they become an abhorrence to look at. So it's directly related to the effect of judgment. That everlasting contempt has to be seen as everlasting because when you see the contrast to everlasting life, if you deny everlasting contempt and judgment, well, then you'd have to deny everlasting life. Well, are we going to deny everlasting life? Well, then we have to deny a lot of things, don't we? So certainly, if everlasting life means everlasting life, and it does, then everlasting contempt means everlasting contempt. Yeah, Bob. Last night, I was looking again at Luke 7 about the woman who wept on Jesus' feet. And Jesus linked love to forgiveness of sins. Amen. So this was a really, really wicked, wicked woman. That's why the religious leaders were mad 
at Jesus for even tolerating her coming into their banquet. But here's what Jesus said. Verse 47, Therefore, I tell you, her many sins have been forgiven. That's why she loved much. But the one who's forgiven little loves little. Then he said to her, your sins are forgiven. And then in case we misunderstand what happened, verse 50, he said to the woman, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. Shalom or Irene. Now, there's rest. He didn't say go back on the street and be a prostitute. Right. Your sins are forgiven. And people in Luke or Luke Acts come to Christ, everything's different. So what we're claiming is that all sins, other than the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit, apostasy, can be forgiven in Christ. So what the liberals are wanting to tell us is that you have to affirm that there really is no such thing as sin and that whatever people do is fine with God and that's a loving thing to do. But the Bible links love to the cross, 1 John 3, 16, and to forgiveness of sins, Luke 7, 47 through 50. And the proclamation of the gospel and forgiveness of sins, the universal call goes to all. Yeah, amen. So what they're really angry about mm-hmm. isn't that God has moral law, because they have their own version of that, but that we actually need Christ for forgiveness of sins. Yeah, amen. And that there's such a thing as repentance. So the real anger is between what Peter Jones calls one-ism and two-ism. Yeah. Is it all just one big gray everything or is there a realm of Christ's lordship right. where sins are yeah where sins are forgiven yeah. there's the love of God right. shed abroad in her heart by the Holy Spirit right. yeah well said thank you Bob <clears throat> yeah Norm yeah I'm trying to uh, put all the pieces together getting back to the hell and there's a literal fire we're talking yeah. about and if there's a literal fire, fire puts out heat and puts out light. Yeah. But we also have another place that talks about hell as a place of darkness. Sure. So do we have a fire that just puts out heat and not light? And then another descriptor talks about hell as a place of a bottomless pit. So we have yeah. these descriptors, and it doesn't seem like we can make them all quite fit together. Yeah, darkness is op- obviously the opposite of light. So God is light, and in him there's no darkness. Um, I would say that we have not necessarily a physical description, although there will certainly be. You've you've been in a family room where there's a fire, but it's still not that bright. You see what I'm saying? Um, But my point is is I think darkness is more of an ethical issue. It's more of a away from God and his light and his salvation. In fact, I'm actually going to be driving towards that very thing because in 2 Thessalonians we see... I'll, sh- I'll show you here in a minute, but yeah. in the one sense, we're in his presence. In another sense, we're not in his presence. L- let, me, let me show you this. Okay. I think this will maybe resolve the, 
yeah, the question. I'm just, I'm just wondering, almost like there is some symbolism in this as well. Th there is, and I think darkness and light is, again, the difference between if you're in God's light, you have His face. May yeah. His face shine upon you. You have His grace. You have His salvation. If you're in darkness, it's not just ethical, but you're away from His countenance. Yeah. You're away from His face shining upon you. You're away from the life-giving God, and all you ever have is His wrath against you. It's darkness in the sense that what kind of mood would you ever have in life? Let's say you woke up every day where the strongest person you ever saw pounded on you day after day after day after day, and all you had was torment. That would be real darkness. Yeah. And that's what's going yeah. to happen for the unregenerate. It is going to be the worst day anyone's ever had, but it goes on and on, and there's never a relent to it. So okay. I think we have to look at, yes, this is literally a lake of fire, and in that sense there will be light or heat and those things released, but it is darkness in the sense that they're away from the face of God. In fact, I'm glad you brought that up. Um, I guess we're out of time. We'll have to hit this next time, but let me just allude to this real quick. Notice in 2 Thessalonians 1, 6 through 10, we'll talk about this next week, but notice in 2 Thessalonians 1, 9, notice it says these will pay the penalty of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of His power. Well, here, let me just put this slide up. Notice... Revelation 14.10, they'll be under torment in the presence of the Lamb. 2 Thessalonians 1.9, they have eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord. Well, how do we resolve that? Well, we're going to resolve that next week. Okay, I'm going to show you that it is a contradiction to say that you're in the presence and not in the presence at the same time in the same relationship, but that's the key issue with the law of non-contradiction, in the same relationship. I'm going to show you that in one sense, the unregenerate will be in the presence of God, but in another sense, they'll be away from His presence in the, in, the, in, the, in, the, in the sense of His saving grace, of His face, that sort of idea. And I think that that's what the darkness is really about. Does that make sense, Norm? Yeah. Okay, well, I'm sorry, we're out of time. We'll bow our heads in prayer. Thank you, Lord, for our time to discuss these great issues and to look at your scriptures. I pray, Lord, that as we look at your judgment to come, again, we would flee to Christ. We would persevere in the faith. I pray this for my brothers and sisters in Jesus' name. Amen.